Now, how are things going for you, brethren? Is life pleasant or difficult? Is it bitter or sweet? Are you overcoming or being overcome? You see, on this side of the kingdom, that's what we have to deal with. There are a lot of things that we have to to deal with. Obstacles in marriage that can cause us heartache and trouble. Family problems between in-laws and outlaws. I'm sure that some of you may have experienced that. I certainly have. Financial problems that cling to us in a difficult economy. Children, young ones and older ones that won't do right. You know, all of you that have children know you want them to do right. You, you learn you can't live your lives, their lives for them. And sometimes, when you least expect it, a health problem for you or someone close to you that knocks you down, or possibly a death of someone dear to you. In the human experience, these things happen, brethren. And then, of course, there are often great blessings. I mentioned the difficulties, but we have great blessings as human beings. And certainly, we do that as we experience this life that we've been given. A wise person said that the same things seem to happen to just about everybody. The difference is in how we react to them. I'm sure that you have observed that. Now, Paul was inspired to write about this back in 1 Corinthians. Please turn back to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, a familiar scripture to all of you. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Paul wrote to the church back at Corinth, he said, No temptation, that is no trial, no test, no difficulty, so no burden, no temptation has overtaken you, such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. You see, brethren, the human experience for all of us is similar. As human beings, we experience some of the same things at different times in our life as we go through that. You see, each generation, brethren, has lessons to learn. Each generation has character to build. You see, it's all part of the plan. We have to experience it. And by doing so, we learn the things that God would have us to learn. Now, it talks here about the temptations or the burdens and so on and how it is a similar experience. God will help us. We also see in another place that we have help. Turn over to Philippians. Paul's letter, the church at Philippi. Philippi, name for Alexander the Great's father. Philippians, chapter 4. We have help. Paul talked about it. Philippians 4, verse 11. Philippians 4, verse 11. Paul said, Not that I speak in regard to need... For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Brethren, I submit to you that takes a converted attitude. He said in whatever state he was, he could be content. He says, I know how to be abased, how to live humbly, how to be down, you see. And he says, and I know how to abound. My margin says live in prosperity. You know, there are times when things go well and you're up. Paul experienced that. He said, I know how to live humbly. I know how to... Uh, be, to abound. He says, everywhere 
And in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. He's describing the human experience. You know, it's like the songwriter says, some days are diamonds, some days are stones, you see. So he goes on and says in verse 13, after looking at it in that way, Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And certainly, brethren, that's where we go for our strength. That's how we can cope. That's how we can overcome, is by going to God, going to Jesus Christ, and asking for the strength that we need, for the help that we need to do the things that we need to do. But even as we look forward to the kingdom of God and the incredible job we will have then, in this life, brethren, we have to deal with the now. We have to deal with the now. Now, as we think about it in our own country now, we're approaching this country's national and local elections just next month. I'm sure that you've been immersed as you turn on the radio or the television to read your newspaper, whatever you get your news, um, with all of the incredible uh, election information. Uh, an incredible amount of time and money is being spent by both parties to get you to vote for their cause. There have been articles, there have been ads, speeches, debates, all designed to convince you that it is your civic duty to cast your ballot. And all the candidates uh, locally and on the national scene have made powerful speeches urging people to exercise their right to vote and to choose their leaders. Uh, you know, brother, that's a strong appeal. That's a strong appeal, and it stirs people to action. And yet we, uh, as God's people, we don't participate in that process. Now, why not? Why don't we do that, brethren? Isn't that our duty as citizens to do that? Well, we'll think about that and answer that question. Let's, there's another aspect of something going on currently in current events. Our nation has been under attack here and overseas. And we are at war in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, to try to head off further terrorism. And happily, it seems to have worked now for seven years. We haven't had any on our own soil. And yet here, too, we as God's people are out of the mainstream. Uh, we're at odds with the vast majority of the people in our society, in our country. So we see ourselves doing things differently. Now, why is that, brethren? Why do we find that? When we come to understand these things that I just mentioned about our nation and so on, it also answers the puzzle of what our job is on this side of the kingdom. Because, you see, our role is different than our neighbors or people that you know that don't understand the things that we do. So today, brethren, let's consider what our job is, our status is now, and why we don't get involved in some of the very important activities of this age. If you want a title for the sermon today, brother, I've entitled it, We Are Ambassadors. Some time ago, as Barbara and I toured Washington, D.C., we were driven through a very important part of the capital city. Our guide, as we uh, drove through, described the various buildings with the different flags flying prominently. Uh, as we drove along, what he told us was Embassy Row. And here are all the embassies, you see, from different countries around the world who are in Washington having a presence there. Now, each nation that has diplomatic relations with the United States sends an ambassador to represent that country's interest. 
in the United States. Now, the ambassador lives in our country. He's an authorized representative or messenger of his government. And in doing so, while he's here, uh, he abides by our laws and enjoys our protection. And while he has that enjoyment, he can come and go as he pleases. He does not get involved in the political processes in this country. That's not his role as an ambassador. Now, brethren, the Bible actually has a, a great deal to say about this subject. There's a lot in the Bible about it, so I think it's important for us to understand it, particularly as we attract attention. You know, we're on uh, hundreds of television stations. Our magazine is approaching 400,000. We're still small, but we are reaching out there. More and more people are coming in contact with the church, and the more we're known, the more our beliefs and so on will be examined. And certainly I think it's important that we understand these things as we attract attention and people demand to know why we do what we do and why we don't do other things. It's something that we need to fully understand and be prepared to explain. Turn back to 1 Peter. What can we expect? What can we expect? The Apostle Peter wrote about it long ago. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3, <clears throat> we'll start in verse 15. 1 Peter 3, verse 15. <clears throat> Peter wrote, but sanctify. Now, that's probably not a word that you use in everyday conversation. You could probably go a whole week and not use that word. <laughs> what it means is to set apart. He says, but set apart the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. And how are we to do that? With meekness and fear. In other words, we should not answer someone who asks an honest question about why we do this or that in a haughty way or a self-righteous way or in a way that says, I can't believe you don't know that, you see. And we might tend to do that, feeling a little superior. No, we're to give that answer with meekness. And fear, that is respect. We should respect the other person and we should answer it in a way that they can understand it. Now, as it goes on here, in verse 16, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, brethren, that will happen. Because people are afraid of things they don't understand. If you're different in your actions and your beliefs, then you can certainly uh, be criticized and it says here that we would be defamed as evildoers those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil so brethren I think as we see as we keep these uh, this way of life as we live the things that we're doing as we become better known there's a good possibility according to to Peter that we will uh, be reviled. And we must be ready for that. It shouldn't catch us off guard. It's not something that should take us by surprise because over and over the Bible says that's the situation that we would have. Now, turn back to Second Timothy. Paul wrote to young Timothy, giving him instruction, and it's recorded uh, for our benefit as well, on this same subject. Second Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8. <clears throat> Let's start in verse 6 and get the context. 2 Timothy 1, verse 6. 
Therefore I remind you, he told young Timothy, to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He's referring, of course, to the Holy Spirit. And brethren, those of you that have been baptized, those of you that have had hands laid upon, have that same gift. You have the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, you see, of timidity, of reticence, you see, of being afraid. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Really helping us to find the balance that we need as God's people in an unbalanced world. A time that we can to put the things that we've been uh, taught, the things that we've learned into practice and showing outgoing concern for others, making wise decisions based on a sound mind. That's what we have. Now, going on in context in verse 8, Paul told Timothy, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. It's clear, brethren, that we are not to be ashamed of the teachings of our beliefs of the gospel and all the things that it entails i know that you've all studied these things and let me urge you to continue to study them and to review them so that you have a really good grasp of the doctrines and beliefs of the living church of god and when someone asks you can give them an answer and that even though it's something that you might be uh, like, like voting or uh, service in the military service uh, tithing, those sorts of things, that you know the answers and you can speak up and not be ashamed because it says that we are not to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And I know that you aren't, but we certainly do need to be prepared. Now, again, let's go back to First Peter. First Peter chapter 4. Peter, who uh, at one time was not courageous and who later had great courage, wrote this. First Peter 4, verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, and eventually, brethren, that may include all of us. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Certainly, brethren, if we are following God's instructions... We may have ourselves, we may find ourselves being persecuted, being suffering, but we should not be ashamed, but glorify God when that does happen. Now, anciently, as we ask the questions about society and our leaders and the election and all that, anciently, Daniel understood something that we need to know. We all like to, uh, to read this book, I'm sure. Turn back to Daniel. Daniel, you know the story of the young Hebrews who were taken captive, who had talent and ability, and they were trained for special service under the great king. And so in Daniel chapter 2, we find the story of Nebuchadnezzar. I won't read the whole story, brother. I hope, brethren, I hope that you will. But Nebuchadnezzar was this great king, and he had a dream, a very disturbing dream, an unsettling dream. And so he gave his wise men and his magicians and the people he looked to for advice, an impossible task. He said, now, not only do I want you to tell me what the dream means, I want you to tell me what the dream was. <laughs> well, they had obviously a great deal of difficulty with that. And yet, along the way, Daniel was called. And we pick up the story then in Daniel chapter 2, 
verse 19. Then the secret, this dream you see, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. Isn't it interesting, brethren, how consistent the Bible is? When the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, the first thing he told them was to start out by honoring God and honoring his name. And here we see Daniel, long before that, saying, as he began, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. Daniel said, For wisdom and might are his. Verse 21, And he, God, changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. Clearly, God puts those in charge that he wants to rule. It's very plain. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. Very interesting. There are no secrets to God, you see. God certainly knows what's going on. He sees the future. He knows what's happening. And as Daniel pointed out to that great king, that God puts those in charge, that he wants to rule. Now, it seems that Nebuchadnezzar came to understand that. Turn over a few pages to Daniel 4. Again, you're all students of the Bible, so you know the story. Nebuchadnezzar uh, became very proud, very vain, very arrogant, and God struck him down for seven years. He had the mind of a beast, it said, and he, uh, the dew fell on him. You can read the story and get all the details. But after he was restored, in Daniel 4, verse 17, this is what he said. This is what the great king said after God had dealt with him. Daniel 4, verse 17, this is the decision, this decision is by the decree of the watchers, and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it, the lowest of men. You can read the rest of it as Nebuchadnezzar told his story about what happened. But clearly God sets up rulers. And sometimes, as he sets over it, the lowest of men. You know, in our history, in this country, we've had some great leaders, some men of great character, great ability, men who seemed to be guided by God and who wanted to know what God wanted done. And there have been times when we've had men of a much lower caliber and who've done things that have embarrassed us as a nation and made really bad decisions. So you see, all of these things work out in accordance with God's plan. Now, as we think about that, there's another principle as we think about God being in charge. Let's turn back to 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16. Again, brethren, you know the story. This is the story where Saul had been chosen by God to be king. He started out so strong. He had so much potential. He looked the part. And while he was small in his own eyes, he seemed to do all right. But Saul wouldn't follow instructions. He was impatient, and God rejected as king. And we pick up the story here in 1 Samuel 16. Now, at this time, um, Samuel had... Uh, well, let's just read verse 1 of chapter 16. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, 
seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. So I'm sure it was with uh, some anticipation that Samuel then went to uh, Jesse's place at, uh, with his horn of oil. Now, we'll pick up the story then in verse 6. So it was when they came, the sons, that he, Samuel, looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. In other words, here came Eliab. He obviously looked the part. Handsome young man, I'm sure, seemed to be well prepared. He said, Oh, this, this must be the one. Look at verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. My margin says rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Rather than all we can see as human beings is the outside. We look at the person and we can see what they look like and how they sound. And, and we can be taken in. We can be fooled. But God, on the other hand, sees the heart, the mind, the character, the essence of who that person actually is. And so I'm sure Samuel learned a lesson here because uh, he saw something that he thought would be the right person. God said no because he looked at the heart. Certainly God sees that and, and we cannot. Now, let's turn over a few pages to 1 Kings. Again, putting lots of scriptures together to make the point. 1 Kings. Now, here's the story of Solomon. You know that David, the man after God's own heart, wanted to build a temple. It was in his heart to do so. And God said no. He was a bloody man. It was not his purpose for David to do it. But David's son Solomon was given that opportunity and that privilege to do that. And, of course, the temple was built, uh, an incredible building, and all uh, so many details were there. But in Solomon's prayer of dedication, he tells us something that we can focus on today. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 39. 1 Kings 8, verse 39. 1 Kings 8, verse 39. You're then here in heaven, breaking into the sentence, then here in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive, Solomon praying to God, and act, and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, parenthesis, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. Again, brethren, we see only God knows the heart. It's true, brethren, we never take God by surprise. We may think we do. And yet God knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. And he knows our motives and what we are doing. So clearly, as we look at Daniel, as we look at Samuel, as we look at Kings, it's clear that God is involved in the affairs of men and in the government of this world, working out his plan. Now, when Jesus Christ walked the earth, he made it very plain that he did not come to get involved in man's government. He was here as a king and so on, and yet he made that plain. Let's look at a couple of examples that illustrate that. Turn back to Luke chapter 12. Luke 12. I think this is interesting. Very interesting, Luke chapter 12. You know, someone said that you never really know someone until you share an inheritance with them. 
I mean, this will bring out, this will bring out the real person. And that's what we have here in this statement in Luke 12, verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the, to divide the inheritance with me. Now, obviously, this brother was not happy with the will. <laughs> For whatever reason, we don't know the details, but they're having trouble over an inheritance. And he says, uh, teacher, uh, tell my brother to give me my share. But look at Jesus Christ's reply. Verse 14. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Jesus refused. He made it plain that he wasn't part of the legal system. It's not that he didn't have the authority. It's just that it was not time. He was not part of the legal system. Now we know plainly, and you'll study it and see it during the Feast of Tabernacles, that when Jesus Christ returns, he will judge with righteousness and equity. You see, he will be involved at that time. But here, at this time, it was not his role. And he refused to get involved in the legal system or in solving that problem. Now, there's another passage that illustrates that on another level. Turn to John 18, verse 33. Again, brethren, you know the story. Jesus has been falsely accused. He's been arrested. He's gone through a mock trial. He's been beaten and abused, and now he's standing before Pilate. In John 18, verse 33. John 18, verse 33. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? What Pilate asked him, Are you the head of the government? Are you in charge? Are you the head of this government? Verse 34, Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, I'm sure sarcastically, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from here. He said, It's not of this age. He said, If it were, my servants would fight. We could say, If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would vote. You see, they're not involved in what's going on in this government at that level. Now going on, he says, Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. As was brought out in the sermonette, you know, sometimes... People hear the voice and, and don't understand it. They can't understand. And yet, when, when God is working with people, they can hear it and they do understand. Pilate said to him, what is truth? There's that classic, classic question. So much of the world wonders today. What is truth? And brethren, you are privileged. We are privileged of a handful that have had our minds open to understand what the truth is. So clearly, Jesus made it plain to Pilate and to the others that he was not involved in the government of this age. Now we have no example of Jesus or the disciples trying to influence or to change the political leaders of the time. Whether it be the Romans who were in charge overall or 
the, the Jews on more local or provincial level. We don't see any indication that they were trying to overthrow that or change that or improve that situation. That was not their role. Now, we do have many examples of Jesus and the disciples standing up for the truth, being obedient to God and His laws, and being obedient to man's government and laws where they didn't conflict with God's laws. They set us an example in doing that. Now, we find this principle of being obedient to man's laws as long as they don't conflict with God's laws in uh, Matthew chapter 22. Turn to Matthew 22. Here we see the Pharisees again trying to trick Jesus, to plot against him, to cause him trouble, to catch him in some mistake. Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. Kind of interesting. It, it wasn't in good faith. It wasn't uh, to try to get to the facts. It was to trick. It was to entangle him. Well, they had more than met their match, obviously. Didn't work out the way they thought. Look at verse 17. Tell us, therefore, as they said to Jesus, the Pharisees, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They knew they had him. They just had to have had him in this situation. So they waited for the answer, verse 18, but Jesus perceived their wickedness. Again, we never take God by surprise. He perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me? You hypocrites. Interesting, Jesus was very plain spoken. Is it any wonder they hated him? <laughs> he put it right out there for them. Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. He said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard these things, they marveled and left him and went their way. So clearly, uh, Jesus Christ uh, gave that. He said that we should render unto Caesar. So today, brethren, we pay our taxes and we obey other laws that don't conflict with God's laws. Now, hopefully you don't pay more than you owe. <laughs> Take all your deductions. It's, you know. But on the other hand, we should pay our taxes and not try to beat that system as it were. That example is given to us by God. Now, to, to further um, expound that and to uh, flesh that out, the principle was explained by the Apostle Paul. Turn over to Romans. Romans 13. Romans 13, we find Paul giving more information about what our conduct should be in this society. Romans 13. In Romans 12, verse 21, he finished up that chapter by saying, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And certainly, we try to do that in our everyday lives and in the church today. Chapter 13 of Romans, verse 1, Paul wrote, Let every soul, every person, be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, that's really a bitter pill for some folks to, to admit that. And yet, God allows authority in this time to be set up. And it tells us why. Therefore, verse 2, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will, will bring judgment on themselves. Break the law, it'll break you. <laughs> you know, if you speed, 
you're obviously going to pay the price. If you break some other law, then there is a penalty attached to that. And this has um, a scriptural basis, as we see. We're to obey the laws of the land. Verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Very interesting as we read that. Uh, several years ago, I, uh, there was a, a church member in another place and another time, and I was talking to him, and he said, you know, that the, he said the, the, the FBI and, and the, uh, uh, the Internal Revenue are harassing me. And I said, well, why do you think that is? And he says, well, I don't think I should have to pay taxes. And I said, well, let me give you a clue. <laughs> pay your taxes, and they'll leave you alone. You know, he, he didn't want to do it. And so it's just what it says here. He, he didn't understand that if you don't follow the rules, it's, there's going to be a penalty. And so we should certainly do that. Verse 4, For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. If you break the law, there is a penalty, you see. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister. And we might not see that in the local sheriff or the mayor or the governor or some other authority, you see. But according to this, he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, verse 5, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but for conscience sake. We should want to be in harmony with the laws of the land. We should touch the base. You know, if it says you have to have a license to go fishing, as irritating as it is, buy the license, you see, you know. <laughs> I mean, so many little things that government does, and yet we may not like it. If you have to get a building permit, get a building permit, even if it takes you 13 weeks to do it. <laughs> You see, been a source of great irritation to me. And yet, brethren, we have to abide by the laws of the land. Verse 7, Paul wrote, or verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs we have to know the customs and do that. A custom could be a fee, like at the border, but I think it also can refer to where the customs do not violate God's ways, and we should certainly follow the customs. Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So we might call the judge your honor, you see, because he is in that role. So brethren, we are to be, this whole passage tells us, we are to be good citizens. We are to be good citizens and upright in all of our doings. But now, when there is a problem, and sometimes man's laws will conflict with God's laws, when there is a problem, we, we do have the answer. And Peter put it best. Turn back to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Peter and the other apostles had been preaching and teaching. And they were very unpopular. What they had to say was very uh, uh, not ha making the leaders of that time happy. This was just as the church was beginning. And they were seen as troublemakers, turning the world upside down. And so we find in Acts chapter 5, um, let's start in verse 28, Acts 5, 28. Uh, the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach this name? And look! You filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. They were not happy with Peter and the apostles. 
But look at Peter's classic response here. Verse 29. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. So the instruction is plain, brethren. When the rules of our society, when the rules of our state, our country, violate God's laws, then we ought to obey God rather than men. And I know you understand that, but I think it's good that we be reminded from time to time, especially as we think about what we'll be doing and where we'll be going and so on uh, in the next few days as we head for the Feast of Tabernacles. Some of you will be going overseas, different laws, different customs, different area. We need to be aware of that and to be good citizens. Now, the question is, <clears throat> what is our status? Regardless of what country in which we live, no matter what our nationality is, as the people of God, what is our status? What is our role at this time? Turn back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. <clears throat> I ask the question, what is our status? Philippians 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able, even to subdue all things to Himself. Brethren, we need to understand this. Certainly, we are here in this time and in this place. But as a part of being a part of God's church, our citizenship is in heaven. And brethren, as we think about this, we are not alone. Sometimes we think it's just, just us and God. You see, I remember when I first came into the truth. I just thought it was Mr. Armstrong and me. You know, <laughs> some of you, I think, had that same thing. I'd listen to the radio and I'd order the literature. And, and little did I know at that time that there was a church. Well, brethren, we are not alone. We are citizens. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Here we find that we have company. And that's comforting. That's good. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Ephesians 2, verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Brethren, you have company. You have your brethren here and people of like mind and like spirit around the world. Not a huge group at this time, of course, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You know, to be a member of a household is special. And you are member, members of God's household, a member of His family. That's, that's remarkable. What a great honor. What a privilege. And I hope that we can understand that, brethren, as we go on and look at these other things that we want to talk about. Verse 20 having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. As I stood in that 300-year-old building last Sabbath and realized that the things that we were talking about, for the most part, had been discussed there for centuries. It just kind of puts you in the flow of history that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We are, we are understanding and putting into practice the things they understood and put into practice. It's, it's, a, it's a very inspiring thing for me, brethren, and I'm sure it is for you as well. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We are fellow citizens. Now, citizen. What, what does it mean, brethren, to be a citizen? 
Well, I got my trusty Webster's Collegiate Dictionary out. And Webster defines a citizen as a native or naturalized person who owes allegiance to a government and is entitled to protection from it. So that's a simple definition of citizen. And you are all citizens of this country. And as people see this around the world, they may be a citizen of Canada or the UK or South Africa or wherever it might be. They're citizens of the country. And certainly we know that our citizenship is in heaven. Now, is it possible when we think about that to have a dual citizenship? Can you have a citizenship in, in more than one country? Well, we have the example of the Apostle Paul. Turn back to Acts 22. Acts 22. Here Paul had been falsely accused. They were always after him because they didn't like his message. Falsely accused and, and uh, in custody, been arrested. We pick up the story, Acts 22, verse 25. And as they bound him with thongs, so they're tying Paul up with, with probably rawhide thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Now, Paul knew his rights. And I'm sure this question was carefully worded for the maximum impact. When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care. <laughs> Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. You see, the Roman citizens had uh, rights under citizenship. They had inalienable rights, as it were. And they could not, without due process, be taken away. Verse 27, then the commander came to him and said, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. So it was possible at that time. And those who had the means did could buy that citizenship. And Paul said, but I was born a citizen. He wasn't naturalized, you see. He was born a citizen. Verse 29, then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. At this point, they would have no part of Paul <laughs> because they didn't want to violate his Roman rights as a Roman citizen. And the commander who was afraid was also afraid after he found out he was a Roman and because he had bound him. So, as we read this, we see that Paul, as a Roman citizen, had certain rights under Roman law, and they were very careful not to violate those rights. Brethren, you have, again, rights as an American citizen or a Canadian citizen or wherever you might be. You have rights as, in your country as a citizen. Um, but even though he was a Roman citizen, there was another aspect to Paul. There was another facet of him, and we find that recorded in Acts 23, going right on in context. Acts 23. Now, they were brought, he was brought before uh, the council, and Paul is giving his defense and the verses that go before this. I'll let you read all of that. It's very eloquent uh, as he did that. But we'll pick up the story in Acts 23, verse 6. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope, the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Now, what was that? Uh, what made that uh, important or significant? A Pharisee was a Jewish citizen. Not only was he a citizen of Rome, he was a Jew, a Benjamite, obviously part of Judah. He was a Pharisee, so he had that citizenship as well. Paul had a dual citizenship, and he used that to his advantage in, in both 
of these situations. You can read about that uh, over in Philippians 3, where he talked about being of the tribe of Benjamin, being circumcised on the eighth day, being a Pharisee of the Pharisees. So we see that Paul had that dual status. As we look at that and think about that historically, brethren, you have a dual citizenship today. All of you. Certainly you are American citizens uh, of the USA or, again, Canada or the UK, wherever you might be in the world. You're a citizen of that country. And very importantly, you're citizens of the heavenly kingdom of God that will be brought to this earth at Christ's return. You have that citizenship. Now, as a citizen, let's look at 2 Timothy. Paul gave Timothy some instruction, and we can certainly apply it to ourselves. As we think about why we don't do some of the things that our neighbors and others and other citizens might do. 2 Timothy 2, verse 3. Let's start in verse 2. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will also be able to teach others also. So there was an organization. It was growing. Look at verse 3. Paul said to Timothy, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. So, brethren, we can just use that principle that as citizens of heaven, we don't entangle ourselves in the affairs of this government and this life in that way. We certainly want to be good citizens. We want to set a good example. We want to do our part. But we don't set about to change it and do those things. We are citizens of heaven. Now, brethren, in addition to being citizens of the kingdom, you have a special role now. While we don't try to do some of those things that I've mentioned, there are things that we do. There are things that are very important for us to understand and for us to do. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Most of you have experienced this, those of you that are baptized, those of you that aren't. I hope you'll be working toward that end, and when the time is right, you will, we'll take that important step. 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Here it's talking about someone who is baptized, somebody has, who has become converted. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, you might say, well, I look in the mirror and I see the same person looking back. It's not a new person. It's the same person. Well, brethren, this is talking about spiritual being spiritually new, spiritual, not physical. And so as we look at this, brethren, what's new? We have a new approach. We look at life differently because we now have God's Spirit guiding us. We have different goals. We have different ambitions. We have a different approach. We have different values. We have a new attitude, hopefully a better attitude once we have God's Spirit and we are focused on the kingdom. We have a new outlook. Things that were once important to us may no longer be important. Things that were once or, or physical goals may no longer be as important. And we have other goals and other things that we want to do. And brethren, as it talks about all things that become new, we'll have new opportunities for growth and for overcoming. Things that we may never have thought about before conversion. 
before coming to understand God's truth. Before we get this new attitude, this new approach, and this new outlook. All things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Being reconciled with God. Not having enmity. Not having separation. You see, it's very important. When we read verse 18, we see that, that uh, we are reconciled to God. The barriers have been removed. There was a time when one had to go through the priest. Now we can go directly to God. There is no barrier when we have that relationship with God. And then, brethren, look at verse 20. This is the role that I wanted you to see. Verse 20. Now then, you see, after this conversion, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Brethren, we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. That's a marvelous thing when you think about it and when you understand it. Now, what does it mean, again, to be an ambassador? It means that you're an official envoy, an authorized representative or messenger. You may not see yourself in that light, and yet this is what the Scripture says. Brethren, do we, do we grasp that? As spirit-begotten Christians, we are authorized representatives of Jesus Christ. I hope you find that exciting. Maybe you haven't thought about it in exactly that way. Now, you might be saying, how on earth can that be? My circumstances just don't permit it. It's just not what I am. Brethren, your circumstances, whatever they are, don't matter. They don't matter. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6. Paul said he knew how to be abased and he knew how to abound. Let's, let's read this. Ephesians 6. Now, at this time, Paul was encouraging them, back in Ephesians 6, to, to be bold in God's service. He was encouraging them to really step out and be bold. And yet, he was incarcerated. He was in prison. Look at verse 20. Ephesians 6, verse 20. Let's look at verse 19. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I might speak boldly as I ought to speak. Brethren, he was in chains, and yet he was an ambassador. I trust you are not in chains, <laughs> you see. Whatever your circumstance, you can be an example. Whatever your circumstance, you can represent God and Jesus Christ in a positive way. So brethren, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, we represent Jesus Christ. I'm sure that you see that and understand that. Brethren, you may be thinking, how can that be? I'm not a minister. I'm, I'm not an official of the church. I'm too old. I'm too young. Uh, I'm just a worker or a homemaker or a student. Or I'm a widow. Or I'm retired. Or I have some serious health problem. Brethren, none of those things matter. None of those things matter. And everything you say and everything you do you're functioning as an ambassador, a messenger for Jesus Christ. The scriptures make it plain. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, we'll start in verse 12. Again, Paul writing, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You see, no one can do it for you. And you can't do it for anyone else. You can't do it for your children. You can't do it for your parents. They can't do it for you. 
we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. Look at verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Brethren, is that not a textbook definition of the society that we live in today? A crooked and perverse generation? It's incredible. You can't deny it. In every place you look, we are in a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Brethren, in verse 14, he said, Do all things, uh, all things that you do. There's an old expression, everything counts. Everything counts. And it certainly does for us in, in Christian life. So brethren, every day, uh, every day things, uh, seemingly ordinary things, are things that we should take uh, special note of because we are to be a light to the world. Look at 1 Corinthians 4. Brethren, we've looked at lots of scriptures today, but they do tell the story so plainly. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Again, Paul writing, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, Let a man, we might say to be politically correct, a person, let a person so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, what is a steward? A steward is a custodian. A steward is someone who has been given the responsibility. A manager, if you will. We are the stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. So brethren, all of us as stewards of the mysteries of God have to be faithful in living the life. Not only uh, talking the talk, but walking the walk and doing the things that we have been instructed. It's very, very important. Now, uh, some little things, everyday things. And I won't turn to all of these scriptures, but I want to give them to you. And maybe you can look them up in your personal Bible study. How do you take care of what God has given you? How do you take care of that? I do want to turn back to Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24. You know, all of us have physical blessings. Hopefully we have a place to live and, and uh, our space, whatever it might be. Proverbs 24 gives some principles here. Proverbs 24, verse 30. It says, I went by the field of a lazy man and by the vineyard of a man devoid of understanding, and it was all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. One of these learning moments, you see. I hope as you go through your day, there are learning moments, things that you see that you can extrapolate into a lesson. And this is what the writer of Proverbs said here. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Brethren, we obviously have to put forth the effort and so on to take care of what God has given us. And our places should reflect that. Not that we do it in a sense of pride, but just to be good stewards of what God has given us. Does your place, does our place reflect good maintenance? Is it well kept? Are you being a good example to your neighbors? Do you take care of yourself? Do you take care of yourself? Uh, turn over to 1 Corinthians. 1 
1 Corinthians chapter 6. Dr. Meredith sets a really good example. He's very active at the gym and encourages all of us to do that. And we can all do better. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, which is in you, which you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So brethren, my purpose here is to just encourage all of us to take care of ourselves in that way physically. To find, the, to find the balance in doing that. To make the time. It's not easy, but we have to do it. And then, especially as we get ready to go to the feast, I want you to turn over to Philippians 4. There's something that we should practice as God's people, as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Philippians 4. Philippians 4. The first part of this is easy because we're getting ready to go to the feast. But the other part may not be so easy or something we need to pay attention to. Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And this is the time of year when we do rejoice. But look at the verse 5. Let your gentleness, it says in the New King James. I like it better in the King James Version where it says, Let your moderation, let your moderation be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Brethren, we certainly should be known for our moderation. We're going to have good food and drink and other things as we're able to go and enjoy the Feast of Tabernacles, the physical blessings and the spiritual blessings. But whether it's there or in our own home, uh, wherever we are in society, let's, let's let our moderation be known to all men and enjoy the bounty that God gives us in moderation. It's a wonderful thing. Now, how about, brethren, not only where we live and how we take care of ourselves, but what about the things that we say? Colossians 4, verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. In our dealings with those, brethren, who are outside, we should uh, deal with them openly and fairly and with wisdom, you see. Look at verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace, not gossip. Not rumor, not harsh words, not words that tear down, but with grace, seasoned with salt. Notice, not peppered with profanity. It's not what we should be doing. We shouldn't have that sort of thing coming out of our mouth. That you may know how you ought to answer each one. Brethren, certainly uh, our words, God uses words to influence us. And our words should be a good influence on other people. And I'm sure that yours are, but certainly we need to be reminded of that. Now, brethren, as we think about all of these things, <clears throat> we realize that our actions speak louder than our words. Brethren, as we endure or enjoy this political season, as you go about your daily work and play, especially as you go to the Feast of Tabernacles, remember that we have an important role to play. You see, in everything we say, in everything we do, we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. With that in mind, we can be good examples to all in whom we come in contact with as we represent the kingdom of God.